Working with data in the healthcare industry brings its own set of challenges. However, it also brings its own unique set of rewards. Today, Sean and I had the chance to chat with Miguel Alvarado, CTO of Lumiata, to talk about the importance of AI and ML in healthcare and why finding the right team can be so challenging in this episode of Data Aware, a podcast about all things data engineering. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Data Aware podcast. Today, I am back with Sean Knapp. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Hey, everybody. (laughs) What you can't see, but I can because we're on videos that Sean just chugged a five hour energy, which means this is going to be a good podcast. I know enough to know now that this is going to be a good podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So today, Sean and I are joined with somebody that Ascend adores. It is Miguel Alvarado, CTO of Lumiata, who is a partner of ours. Hey, Miguel, how's it going? Hi, it's going well. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. We're super happy to have you on the line. I have heard such fantastic things about Lumiata and what you guys are doing in the healthcare space with AI and ML that I know Sean and I are both really excited to chat with you today and start diving in on some of that because it's a fascinating, fascinating space. So thanks for joining. Thanks for digging in on this. Why don't you start us off by giving us just a little bit of background or the listeners really a little bit of background on yourself and a little bit of background on Lumiata, and then we'll really just start diving into it. Sure. Um, So I'll I'll, uh, start with my background. So I have a little bit over 25 years of experience with software. I started my career back in 1996 at Microsoft back in the day. So I had a few different individual contributor gigs uh, before I got into leadership. And, you know, I started managing a couple of people, then three people. And um, then I became part of this little startup that was four people. Then we got acquired. It was called Meta Stories. We got acquired by a company called Brightcove, which was an online media platform, which was actually the biggest competitor to a company that Sean used to uh, be a co-founder of called Uyala. Anyway, since since Brightcove, I spent a lot of time building analytic systems, building big data and analytic systems. And that continued over to Intel, uh, Verizon, and Vivo. And throughout that journey, machine learning popped up at some point uh, about seven years ago, which is kind of like the natural progression. You start with big data and they start thinking about the cool things you can do with big data and machine learning, you know, it's the natural progression. And at some point, uh, a couple of years ago, I thought that I wanted to do, that I had been doing media for a long time. And that was really cool and interesting uh, and really fun and challenging in a lot of ways um, because of scale. But I felt like I needed to go somewhere where my work or the products that I built had more social impact than, you know, something a little bit juicier than just entertainment. So I I felt that there were two areas that could be of interest. One was education and the other one was healthcare. Those to me were, they're kind of like the two pillars of of any society, right? Education and and, uh, healthcare. And in that journey, I found Lumiara, and Lumiara had the perfect combination of a strong, ambitious mission and vision. It had a good team, and it had a lot of data, which is rare. Sometimes when you are looking at the startup environment, uh, when it comes to AI, 
you hear really interesting problems and then you ask people, well, how are you doing it? What's your data? Where are you getting your data from? How much data do you have? I'm like, well, we don't have much data. It's like, okay, well, that's gonna be a problem if you wanna do machine learning. So now pivoting the conversation a little bit into Lumiera. So um, what Lumiera is, uh, well, first of all, I'm CTO at Lumiera. So I oversee software engineering, uh, data science and product management. And we are a company that has built a, an AI platform that allows us to deliver machine learning models to solve very specific problems in healthcare. And the use cases that we go after range from predicting cost and risk for individuals and groups of individuals for the sake of uh, health insurance underwriting, all the way over to the clinical side, which is more around predicting disease onset and medical events. And we have been following a land and expand strategy where we've been landing in the area of cost and risk prediction. We felt that that was a very pragmatic, very obtainable um, area to focus on. You know, you're predicting costs, so it's not very different from financial companies predicting financial outcomes. So there's prior art there. So we're landing there. That's where we're gaining our momentum. But we're expanding to the clinical side. And an example of that is a pharmacy company called FGC in Canada. And what they've done is they've deployed uh, Lumiera models in 12 pharmacies, so models in a physical environment. And we have data for a lot of their customers. So when the customer comes in to buy their meds, they fill out a few questions and then we do a prediction for diabetes type two and another condition, I forget which one at the moment. But if that prediction comes true or it, it turns out to be true, then the pharmacist ask the, the customer if they want to spend some time with a physician assistant. So they do like a mini intervention there. And then, you know, the outcome of that could be that there's a doctor appointment that gets scheduled. Right. So this is only spirit of bettering uh, health outcomes and getting ahead of things. And I find it fascinating because it's AI in a physical environment and FGC is doing an A-B test between 12 pharmacies that have this and 12 pharmacies that don't have it. And they're trying to gauge what the satisfaction uh, metrics say from their customers. So just that's, go ahead. I just yeah. said, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. So that just shows you like kind of a, a, an idea of the breadth of things we're doing. And, and part of what we're doing too is where we've been building tools for ourselves to um, uh, industrialize the machine learning lifecycle from uh, raw data over to fully productionized models. And, and we've been exposing some of those tools to our customers uh, so that they could accelerate the way that they go about building machine learning models and whatnot. That area, that area hasn't gained as much momentum, but um, we're finding a sweet spot for that in the actuarial practices. So actuaries turn out to be like the closest thing to uh, data scientists that some of these healthcare companies have. Yeah. And actuaries happen to know math and they happen to know statistics, but they don't program, they don't code, but they're, they have the ability to understand machine learning way better than a lot of other people. So now we're kind of pivoting with our uh, tools to build machine learning models into building tools for actuaries to build machine learning models. And I'll stop there. There's a lot more to say about Lumiana, but I think that's, that's the gist of it. Awesome. And so I don't, um, for, for those, since we're on podcast and not on video, but for those who are recording, I could take copious notes, old school style, uh, written down. So I've been frantically writing uh, all sorts of questions as I hear Miguel um, walk us through a bunch of this. And I, I, so many 
different sort of threads to pull on and, and areas to focus on. And so uh, I really want to dive more into the, um, uh, into the, the healthcare specific stuff, uh, but I have a feeling we'll spend so much time there. Wanted to start first with a, a little bit more sort of general, as we think about, you know, your journey all the way back from Microsoft to especially a lot of the ecosystem that, and when you've been, you know, in the data world, media to healthcare, and you even talked about a lot of the sort of predictive things that y'all are doing at uh, Lumiata and how there's similarities between that and the finance uh, domain as well. Walk us through this because, you know, we have uh, listeners on the podcast from all sorts of different uh, domains and industries. What are the similarities? Like, what are the things that are transferable uh, between yeah. these different industries? And then also, what are the things that will then bridge into more um, healthcare specific stuff? What are the things that are like really distinctly different uh, about healthcare from, from others? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think part of the answer has to do with why I jumped from media to healthcare. Basically, I felt that there are some things that are truths about data and machine learning across any vertical. And I felt like, hey, so we've solved some problems in media. Healthcare is a little bit behind. There's an opportunity to bring some of the stuff that we've done in media in healthcare and help move, move the needle forward. So some of the similarities are, are so uh, when it comes to data, everybody has the same problems and we've been having the same problems forever, right? And quality, as you know, it's really hard to still get right. And when it comes to machine learning, garbage in, garbage out. And the worst thing that you can have is a data scientist troubleshooting a model for weeks and then they realize that the model is fine. The problem was the source data to begin with, right? All the way down here. So those are problems that we've had in, in software and big data for quite some time. So I think that's a similarity, right? Like I think dealing with data problems while the specific manifestation of the problems is different depending on what domain you're in, at the end it's the same core problems, right? Um, you know, how do you ensure data quality? How do you generally validate data? How do you keep the lineage between source data and derivatives of the data? How do you treat data almost like source coding? How do you version it? You know, there's, I could keep going on and on and on, but you, you get the idea, right? It's the same data problems. Uh, when it comes to machine learning, I think that you, you can see machine learning as a generalist where if you understand regression, classification, time series problems uh, and the solutions, and then you understand things like traditional machine learning algorithms, what each algorithm is capable of doing, supervised and supervised, semi-supervised, and going all the way to deep learning, different architectures and what architectures are good for. If you can understand those things in an abstract way, you can apply those things to any, to any vertical, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, are, if you know how to predict time series data, well, you could go to Uber and predict, you know, what the, the right behavior is going to look like at any point in time in the future. Or you could go to finance and predict the stock market. <laughs> or you can come to Lumiata and predict what somebody's health timeline is going to look like in a year from now. So, again, you, it's, those things are very transferable. Yep. And when we think about the things that are, are really unique and distinct, like what are the, the things that you've had to build on top of this foundation? for, uh, you know, very specifically Lumiata in the healthcare industry? Yeah, it's a good question too. I think there's a couple of different things. I mean, one that thing that's very distinct is the 
and maybe we share this with the financial industry, which is you security and privacy are at the heart of it all, right? Like you have to be super careful. If you're, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you have a breach on healthcare data, the fees that you have to pay as a penalty for that breach, they're ridiculous. It's like $50,000 per person. So if you have a data set of a million people and you have a breach, that's all you probably go out of business as a small startup. So as a small startup, you have to go above and beyond to have a very secure environment that has all the guardrails for privacy as well. So um, that's one thing and, and how it's different. Here's another thing that's really interesting. When you're dealing with healthcare data, it's incredibly fragmented. So for instance, if we get data from a provider, when it comes to an individual, the provider is only going to have information for that individual for the times that they went to see that provider. So if you're a person that has seen a lot of different doctors, well, we're only going to see the data from that hospital system or that doctor, right? But we, we can't see any of the data from the other providers. So that's a problem. We only have a limited view from you. If the data is coming from a payer, so a health insurance company, you're all, we're only going to get the data for the time that you were covered by that insurance, right? If you went from one job to another, the, the insurance company is only going to have data for you when you were employed by the company that had insurance policies with that, with that payer. Even if you went from one employer to another, the insurance company may have you broken down as two different people and they haven't connected you as a single individual. So that makes it incredibly hard to create models that will predict with decent level of accuracy at the individual level if you're trying to predict things like, um, like disease onset, right? Because to predict conditions, you need to have a very accurate health history for individuals. And it's always going to be fragmented. There's ways around that, by the way, but it's hard. Whereas if you're... Yeah, if you're in a media company, you're building a recommender for content, likely is that that company has all the data for that individual for when they've been consuming video for that, you know, for that property. Um, so it's a little different. And, and so one of the things that, that you touched on too, which we see, we certainly see from the Ascend perspective, uh, a shift across industries. Uh, around data and privacy and security as well. Uh, clearly, we're entering these heightened states of awareness uh, around uh, privacy and security. And you know, as we've talked over the years, I know that you all, because you work with all sorts of different customers and partners and providers and so on, you're dealing with people who have data across different cloud systems. You have people who literally have records sitting on a server in somebody's closet inside of the hospital. How do you deal with this? And, and like, what are so, you know, if, if, you know, one of these, one of our listeners is like thinking about starting their own company in the, the healthcare space, like what are the things that like they should know around, these are the things that you are going to meet from a requirements perspective when you want to go tap into healthcare data? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that, so here's something that's interesting about Lumiata, right? I think that initially, some time ago, Lumiata wanted to make a difference when it comes to machine learning. And in that journey, they discovered like, wow, before we even get to machine learning, we got to get the data part right. <laughs> and that requires way more effort than anybody imagines, right? And in healthcare, 
it's really messy. I mean, there are very few companies that have a very pristine environment. I got to say that probably insurance companies have the cleanest, the cleanest data because their business depends, you know, the, the claims data sets are mission critical. So they better be right, right? So their whole business depends on it. But when it comes to the provider side, it gets messier and messier. Um, you know, if you go to the ACO side, they have data from a lot of different places. So in every place has a different data format. So I guess if you're somebody getting into this space, you just got to know that there's no common ground and you're just going to have to deal with a lot of different data schemas from different people and just have to figure out a way to normalize that to something, right? You know, when I, when I joined Lumiata, I thought, well, hey, isn't everybody just using Fire HL7, which is a standard? Well, yeah, everybody would like to be using it, but a lot of people are not. Um, and even when people are using it, there's a disconnect between organizations like some, you go to a payer, maybe some IT department is using Fire for interop on some systems, but then we're dealing with the analytics team and they're disconnecting from that IT department. So when they share data to us, it's just table dumps from data warehouses. So there's fragmentation even within these companies themselves. Well, and so this becomes a little bit interesting uh, too, because it, you know, as we've talked about it in the past, it, like all of this stuff is basically just getting in the way of you do the really cool, fancy stuff, right? Was it? Uh, I forget the the woman that I think had this quote, which was like, you know, the greatest minds of our uh, our generation are fixing like commas inside of you know <laughs> files, right? Just to try and get things to parse and like splitting fields and so on. Spot on for sure. And and, and it, which is, I'm sure has got to be you know disheartening for many data scientists early on in their career who was like, I thought I was going to save the world, and I'm reading through a, a spreadsheet to to chop stuff up. But, you know, like a lot of things, you kind of got to work your, grind your way through some of the, that monotony to get there. And, and, and you know, technology is making this easier over time. And I think the one interesting question that I always like to ask folks from different industries are, like, what is your team composition look like? And what's, what are like those ideal ratios? And what, I think we had Jesse Anderson on a, a couple of podcasts ago and, you know, it, there's a lot of, and it's a moving target, right? Depending on the, the the products and the technologies available in the space, like how many analytics people you want versus how many data scientists versus machine learning engineers versus data engineers. Like in your mind, like what are these ratios and, and what are the, even more importantly, the skill sets you look for uh, across these so that you have like, you don't have your data engineer trying to do, you know, modeling of data and you don't have your data scientists trying to manage your infrastructure. Like what, what does that look like? This is a really great question because um, we, we are, we're growing. So we've been recruiting a lot recently. So I've been talking to a lot of candidates and here's a huge problem that I see even before I get to ratios. The variance in the industry of what a data engineer is or what a machine learning engineer is, is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. The skill sets are all over the place. I mean, sometimes I'm talking to a data engineer that, you know, has been doing a bunch of SQL and, and now they do it in, in Spark. So now they're a data engineer. I'm, I'm sorry, if you just know SQL, to me, that's not a data engineer. Or I've been interviewing so many machine learning engineers that say I'm a machine learning engineer. 
Um, and you know, they, they've been coding because they've been training models in a Jupyter notebook and that's, but that's the extent of the coding. It's like, well, I, yeah, I code Jupyter. I, I you know, I trained a model in Jupyter and then I, I created a Docker container and I pushed that to production. Well, that's still not software development. I mean, the, the amount of code that you've had to write is very limited. Um, so I think the key things to define these roles, right? So to me, a data engineer is somebody that understands distributed systems. Uh, it maybe hasn't had to build a distributed system, but they understand the inner workings of something like Spark very well, mm -hmm. right? And they know one widespread language, at least, right? Like it could be Java, it could be Scala. I mean, if, you, if you're going for that world, Scala, it wouldn't be uh, out of the ordinary. Um, and, uh, and you're very strong with, it could be Python as well, but you're very, very strong in that language and you understand what software design patterns are. You'd be, I can filter out the majority of people from data engineering, machine learning engineering by, by asking them, what, are, what is design patterns? So what are the most popular design patterns that you use? Some people are like, oh, well, you know, I, I write code that, uh, you know, can scale. Well, that's, you haven't answered my question. That's not a design pattern. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it's just like a requirement. And that's a very ambiguous requirement. So I think that a data engineer, or machine learning engineer, first of all, they need to have strong software development foundation, right? Like period, right? You need to understand design patterns. You need to understand how to write maintainable, well-structured code. You need to know how to write tests for that code. I'd uh, be surprised how many people don't write their own tests. Anyway, assuming that that foundation's there, then you have the specialization of data and machine learning. Well, if you're a data engineer, you're, very, you're a very strong engineer, but now you have a passion to solve data problems. You have an interest in solving data-specific problems and you wanna do that at scale. On the machine learning side, again, you have the software foundation, but you also, you're a little bit of a data scientist too. You know the math, you know the statistics, you read a lot of papers, so you know how to train models, you understand the algorithms, so you know what algorithms to apply for what problems, and you also understand the underlying infrastructure. Like you understand Kubernetes, you understand Kubeflow, uh, you understand what distributed training is, you know, all those things. So I think like, with this definition, it makes machine learning engineer a, a, a bit of a unicorn because I expect people to be a bit of a systems engineer, a bit of a distributed systems engineer, but also know all these things that a data scientist knows, right? And it, well, so then what's a data scientist? Data scientist is somebody that understands the math and statistics um, of different algorithms to solve data problems. Doesn't have to be only machine learning. But I think the statistical background uh, gives them the toolkit to, to solve many different kinds of problems. In our case, we do want a data scientist to know machine learning and, and be a bit of a machine learning practitioner. The difference machine learning engineer, data scientist is that the data scientist is not expected to have the software foundation that we talked about, distributed systems and whatnot. They're, they're gonna be more on the math side of things, more and more the, this is how the algorithms work and how I can, uh, creatively solve problems with mass statistics and, and machine learning algorithms. Now that that definition is there, the ratio, I would say one data scientist for every four to five engineers. Uh, and from that, probably you wanna have, it depends on what type of shop you are, but I would say three data engineers and two machine learning engineers. And this is without counting the engineers that you would want to have building services and building front end stuff. This is just kind of like strictly on the data machine learning side. Interesting. So what would you say to, uh, we, we encounter a ton of companies, but the ratios are flipped. 
-hmm. there are you know five data scientists for one data like you know a star engineer as in like data engineer ml engineer infrastructure engineer and, and I mean, besides feeling bad for that poor engineer um, who's got so many folks they got to like go go support, like what would you do? Like, because at some point you end up finding all those data scientists, they're doing data engineering work, right? They like. Well, that's a problem. So that's a problem that that exactly if you have the the ratio flipped, you end up having data scientists doing a bunch of data engineering, and sometimes they're willing to do it and they're happy to do it but they don't have the software foundation. So you're gonna end up with a lot of very well-structured spaghetti code. Now that's just very <laughs> well-structured spaghetti code. <laughs> Second oh, time I've heard good. spaghetti code today, by the way. <laughs> oh, was right. it in, in this? Uh, we yeah. do a, a, Pretty sure a, it was. an internal tech talk uh, weekly. So nice. I was drawing a lot of stuff on the, on the whiteboard. Um, well, Okay, so this is really, I'd love to keep pulling on this thread, but it, it's, um, we got a, a bunch of other things I'd love to talk through. So, you know, one of the, the things you mentioned earlier, and I want to kind of, you know, pop back up to that, which is really interesting. You know, you talked about coming from media where, you know, you end up with this, like, insane volume of data, usually, right? Like, media, online video consumption, right? We both played in the same industries, and you're like, oh, we can track every like heartbeat from the player. So we know what seconds of video you watched when you, you know, came in, when you abandoned, um, all of this stuff. You get so much data, right? And generally speaking, the the you know, assuming you know good data in, good outcome, but you need certain volumes of data. And you touched on this earlier. So I'm gonna ask you like a which is probably a really hard question to answer, but I'm gonna ask it anyways, because I, I think that a lot of people as they get started have to answer this question, which is how much data do you need? Mm. I know the answer is going to start with, it depends. And so then I'm going to peel back to another, but like, how much do you need? Is it like, yeah, well, how do you know if you have statistically significant data or if you need to go get more, et cetera? That's a super hard question to answer, like exactly how much you need. But I mean, roughly, I'll say that I have, from what I've seen in media and in healthcare, I mean, you, you need data at least in the hundreds of thousands of, of, of samples, right? For machine learning to really move the needle. You can develop things with dozens of records, hundreds of records, a few thousand, and that'll get you going on the development side. But if you really want to get to maximum performance of a model, I think you do need large volumes uh, starting in, uh, I think for, for cost and, and risk prediction, I want to say that we found to be like the minimum to be, if I'm not mistaken, around 600,000 uh, people records. Um, and it, but that was like as the bare minimum, right? You do want to go up from there. And then it depends what kind of machine learning algorithms you're using. Traditional machine learning kind of plateaus. Like if you're using gradient boosted decision trees, which is very popular for tabular data, for structured data, at some point you plateau and it doesn't matter how much more data you add, it's not gonna give you that much more performance, right? But if you're doing deep learning, then then you start throwing a lot of data at the problem, right? And then you need many million person records to move the needle. Interesting. And so from a, from a general philosophy perspective, is it just get as much data as you can, obviously with, you know, within boundaries of what you, especially in the healthcare space, knowing what you can collect and what you, you know, could or should and shouldn't collect. 
but really you're like you're just trying to absorb as much data as possible yeah and and it's it we do so we we at lumiara internally we have around 120 million person records uh combining claim data and EHR. so that's probably a third of the u.s population uh so it's a pretty big data set but we have the luxury of having the healthcare connections that we have because of our investors and whatnot. Not everybody has that luxury. Um, so you have to get practical and creative. I've seen people have level of success, some level of success with synthetic data. Like that's becoming a, a big thing in machine learning now, like creating synthetic data for the problems you're trying to solve. Now the question is, well, how do you create synthetic data, right? How will, what? You're not just going to make up data, right? And have things work. And so there's a few things that I've seen. We haven't tried any of this, but there's a few things that I've read people do uh, in papers and in articles. One is given a real data set, right? From a population, uh, use GANs to generate more data that looks like that, right? So that's one, that's one technique that I've seen people use. Another technique, which is a lot more elaborate, uh, there's another startup, another coastal adventure startup that has created expert systems that simulate what real world interactions look like. And through these, in these simulations generate health records that are very, that resemble reality. So, you know, the expert systems simulate interaction between patient and doctor. And there's a lot of medical literature baked into these systems. And then they run the simulations and then you end up with data that looks more or less like real data. And I've heard that that works really well as well. Super interesting. That's super interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would not have guessed that personally, that that was a thing. But it may, I mean, it makes sense as you say it. It's just not something- because Sometimes you don't have the data, right? And there's yeah. a lot of startups that just, they start cold, right? They yeah. start from nothing. So how do they get the data? especially in healthcare, it's incredibly expensive to buy that. You can, you can buy data, but it, it costs several hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So as you were saying that, I thought of another question on the, last, on the, the top thread before. So I'm going to ping pong all over the place. This is the benefit of having a five-hour shot before the call. Is, <laughs> so, and then we're going to circle back to this, but I think it, it was really, as we talked about this ratio, right, this, this sort of, you know, one data science to, you know, four to five edge of which, you know, a three to two on, on data edge to ML edge. It feels like we see so many people continue to, to, to have the upside down ratios on this. And of course, yes, right. This is the Ascend podcast. Of course, our plug for, hey, we can really help you get data engineering leverage. Yes. Okay, cool. So we got that out of the way. Let's assume this, this really painful dark world where it's like Ascend just doesn't exist and everybody has to go figure it out for themselves, right? Like, you know, it's just going to rain all the time and be cloudy and people just be sad, right? That world. How do you go find more data engineers? Yeah. Like, it, it, like all these ratios, like, it, like, how do you do it, right? In this horrible world that where Ascend doesn't exist and you got to go figure it out on your own. Like most folks are upside down on their ratios, because they're not there. It's so hard to find a data engineer. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like, how do you get them? Yeah, well, I was saying earlier, right? Like there's a lot of data engineers that have the data part, but they don't have the engineer part. Right. Uh, and, and that makes it very hard. That's why in some ways uh, we've taken the, the philosophy of like, let's just hire very strong software engineers. Forget about the data in ML monikers. Like that's the, 
maybe those monikers will go away one day, to be honest, right? It's, it's an interesting specialization that I think is doing the industry more harm than good. But it's just hire really, really strong software engineers that understand distributed systems, like have very good principles that want to solve data and machine learning problems. <laughs> and that and you can find way better engineering manpower that way than if you specialize. If your job description just says data engineer, you're going to get a lot of noise, unfortunately, on the candidates. Um, and, and I mean, we try it all. Like we put a bunch of job descriptions for the same role because we want to, <laughs> you kind of have to these days because these things mean different things in different companies. Even, even in, big, in big companies, these titles mean different things depending on the team you work on. Like we talked with a lady from Apple recently and uh, she, her, her title was machine learning engineer. She was more of a research engineer. But then we talked with another gentleman from Apple and he was more like what I think of a machine learning engineer being, but even in the same company, you know, there's variance of what these titles mean. It's interesting so, that you say that too, because so as Sean mentioned, we had uh, Jesse Anderson on the podcast a couple episodes ago who has spent an inordinate amount of time like researching what makes up a good data team. And one of the things that he said was, to your point, it can't just be a software engineer. It has to be a software engineer that loves data. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the underlying point there is it has to be a software engineer. That's right. That's right. That's who right. Loves data and wants to work with data products. And as crazy as it may seem to us, because we're so steeped in the data industry, there are the software engineers out there who maybe don't want to work on data products. Oh yeah. Oh, there's many. Yeah, yeah, I have personal friends who like do it. Like that's just crazy. I don't want to. <laughs> right, they don't want to deal with it. But <laughs> it has it has to start with that foundation of software engineer. But they, you know, yeah. who loves data and wants to work with data, and that's that's where you get to it. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. And the thing about data engineers, like, there's a The reason why there's a lot of variance is because some people come from the software background, but some people come from a data analyst background. They were data analysts, they use BI products, at some point they learn SQL. But there's a difference between that and writing a, a Spark job that scales well. <laughs> oh, or, <laughs> so I, I, think, I think that's the nature of things. Now, I think there are tools that allow, you know, these people that come, on from, come more from the analyst background to do more data engineering things and, that, and that's fine. Uh, but the other thing like for us is like, you know, we're a small shop and I just like generalists, like a couple of our best engineers that we have today are the ones that could be working on a security problem right now, but then tomorrow they're training a model, but the day after they're, they're creating a REST API, but then the day after they're, they're working on the data pipeline, like those are, I think, the generalists, I call them now full stack machine learning engineers that can do anything, right? And they're hard to find, but if you can find those, those are super awesome to have because you can throw them at all sorts of problems. Well, and so that reminds me of uh, something you touched on a little bit earlier too, when like you know finding these these unicorns, right? Um, the um, you mentioned asking about design patterns, Not, and and hopefully this doesn't like totally hose your future interviews, um, <laughs> but. What's a great answer to that question? Like, you know, if you were coaching other CTOs of like, hey, like this is like my one question to really, you know, 
determine if they're going to be a great data engineer or not? Like, that, that's a what's, good, what's an answer you look for? That's a very good question. And I don't expect a specific answer to that question. I expect a conversation. Like, for instance, I just entered, they did a 30 minute phone screen with a gentleman earlier today, and I asked him about design patterns. I said, well, let's talk about design patterns. Like, what are design patterns? What are design patterns that you have found helpful in well, building software? Like, let's just talk about design patterns. And he goes, oh, design patterns. I'm like, oh, where's the, he sounds kind of uh, overwhelmed. Like, well, where is this going to go? And, and he's like, well, no, I think that, you know, I've had to go through two iterations of learning design patterns, right? He's like, I, I was doing object-oriented design and programming for a long time. And so I learned all, all the patterns there. And it was all about classes and how you structure these classes and so forth. Then I moved to a gig where I was doing Scala and it was all functional. Now, so I went from object-oriented to functional programming. So I had to learn a whole other sleuth of patterns. They're all functional patterns. And we kind of geeked out a little bit, talk about what that meant. And we talked about, you know, combining object-oriented with functional programming. But it was a good discussion. Clearly, the guy had been around. <laughs> and clearly, the guy had done some thinking around, around well-designed software, functional and object-oriented. So he passed my, my, my test, right? I wasn't looking for a specific answer. I was looking for a conversation. If you can reason around patterns one way or another and, and have an eloquent conversation about it, I think that always puts you at the, unfortunately, five to 10 percentile of the data engineering, machine learning engineering candidates out there. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think it, it highlights the, there is no perfect answer for, or uniform one size fits all answer for all that's problems, right? right? And so right. kind of to your comment of, of really wanting to find these incredibly high leverage uh, generalists that are, you know, the, frankly, A players in every part they touch, um, you want those people with that flexibility to find that right pattern for the, the, the problem space that they're exactly, in. Exactly. Another example is another guy from, from this earlier today. Um, he ha doesn't have a ton of real world machine learning experience, mainly from his master's, but he was at Microsoft for 10 years. Uh, so clearly he was doing something in Microsoft, right? So uh, I asked him the same question. Let's talk about patterns. And he said, oh man, patterns. You know, I thought that I could write good software. And then what, what, somebody recommended me this book, Design Patterns by, you know, Eric Gama, Richard Helm, and, all, and there's two other authors I can remember, which is a classic. Like I read that. I'm like, oh my God, I, where have I been? You know, like I haven't been writing software the right way. So he had a really good, cool story to talk, to tell regard, regarding design patterns. So he also passed my test, right? Like, it's like, he, he knows, he knows the book. He's read the book. It's a little old school uh, for some people, but it has a lot of uh, things that still, you know, apply to today's era. Um, so yeah, it's more of a conversation that I'm looking for more than an answer. Cool. So I know we have a few more minutes. Uh, there's uh, two, two sort of questions. I'd really love to, to ask here as we, we start to wrap this up. You know, first is what are some of those like really incredible that you can share? Uh, obviously, uh, aha moments you've seen at Lumiata with your customers, right? They, where the, the rubber meets the road and, and this like really practical application. What are some of those? Yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely a few, but there's one really cool one that I'm excited about. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've been beyond the models that are deployed to specific use cases. Um, 
there's a model builder product that we've been kind of working on. Um, and I think we have hit, missed the mark a little bit. It's, it's, it tries to be like a no-code way to build models. But it, when you look at the UI, it's like it follows the same steps that a data scientist would follow. So it defeats the purpose of having a UI to build a model because it's supposed to be used by somebody that is not a data scientist. So we realized, hey, we need, we need to do a little bit of work on this uh, to, to make it hit the spot. Um, and as we've been researching, like I said earlier, uh, it turns out that actuaries have been in the business of predicting things for quite some time. They've been in the business of predicting things for decades. And it happens to be that probably the most advanced when it comes to statistics and math in organizations like health insurance companies. So the similarity between an actuary and a data scientist is vast. And then it happens to be that that world is changing. Like in UK, for instance, now it, the, I believe it's 10 to 20% of the actuarial curriculum includes machine learning. 10% of the certification test includes machine learning. The US will eventually catch on and, and be there too. So it was a hot moment of realizing, oh man, actuaries are like the, the geeks that I've been looking for inside healthcare beyond data scientists. And, and nobody has built a product for them. Right. So I, I think that um, and hopefully me saying this in this podcast doesn't now handicap us the ability to build something unique and have somebody else go and build it. But I, I joke. Um, <laughs> I, I think that uh, that it was a bit of an aha moment just realizing like, wow, here's an opportunity to build something very cool for a customer that or, or a persona that has been neglected for quite some time. Awesome. That's really cool. So I have, I have one more question, and uh, Leslie, I don't know if you have, a, have another one too, but uh, I wrote this down because uh, I definitely wanted to make sure we hit this, which was, so we're on this journey, right, as a both a technology industry, but also the healthcare industry, uh, more specifically, is on this journey, right, of, of really leveraging data and applying AI and ML uh, to, to drive far greater good, right, and, and yeah. impact for society how far are we on this journey? Like, are we, are we there yet? Are we at the end? Are we at the start? Like, uh, like what, how much of the, the, like the theoretical and potential benefits are we seeing and what's this going to go look like in 10 years? Yeah, that's a very good question. Let's talk also about the negative repercussions that we're already seeing. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think, I think we're, I think data and machine learning are still in its infancy, right? I think that we're just getting the ball rolling. Um, and, and where are things gonna, the problem with machine learning, right? Is that it doesn't, it's not like you're really learning that much with any given model, right? You're optimizing for one objective function. So you're learning enough to solve something very specific. But if you're trying to mimic intelligence as a whole, you can see how limiting that is, right? So I think that, however, things like reinforcement learning, you know, start to look like real intelligence, right? Because you have these simulated worlds where the agents uh, have a reward penalty kind of assist kind of way to learn. And um, that to me looks more like a little baby learning and the, what's around in the world, right? So that's starting to look more like intelligence, but still barely, barely beginning, right? You have reinforcement learning systems 
beating somebody at games, but it's a very specific problem. We yet need to figure out how we are going to generalize learning. How do you create systems that can just learn many different things and many different domains that they're not specific to one thing? So I think that what we're going to see 10 years from now is likely that, right? Systems that can learn a lot of different things and you combine that with robotics and then you can have more something that simulates more the human expression of learning, if that makes sense. So uh, that said, we got to be careful with what we built because if you haven't seen the social dilemma or if you have a Netflix, you can see the huge negative effect that AI already has in our society, right? So I think people build systems in, in social media that, you know, they didn't do it maliciously, but nobody really thought about the potential ramifications that things would have. So now that we know that things can have negative ramifications, the ethical part of AI is going to be very important. Um, yeah, that sort of investing and taking the time, not just to figure out if we can do something, but whether or not we should. That's right. I hear, well. I hear that uh, Google is taking that philosophy very seriously. It's not just can we, but should we? Yep. And, and, and that's something we all collectively have to be aware of and, and kind of um, uh, operate with those boundaries. Well, I think that was a better topic to end it on than I would have. So I'm happy. <laughs> um, Miguel, thank you so much. This was, again, I said it leaning into it. I, I find this space incredibly, incredibly fascinating because to your point, the options and the possibilities are somewhat endless. Again, just because you can doesn't mean you should, but it's some of the yeah. stuff that can be done is just it, it is amazing. So this is super interesting. And I'm, I'm certain we will have you on again, talking about this in more detail and, and diving in on some of those threads that maybe we didn't have a chance to pull today. So we really appreciate you coming on board. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was fun. It's always fun to talk about these things. With this background in some pretty diverse industries, Miguel's perspective is always interesting, as is his insight, especially when it comes to team dynamics and skills. Now, if you're interested in learning more about Lumiata, you can find them at lumiata.com. And as always, if there are any questions for us, you can find us at ascend.io. Welcome to a new era of data engineering.